According to Sigmund Freud, there are no accidents. If we say the wrong thing, versprechen, it isn't because we didn't want to say it. Rather, our unconscious erupted inside of us and exploded out of our mouth involuntarily. If we get on the wrong train by accident, it wasn't an accident at all. For some deep unconscious reason which we are not yet privy to, we wanted to get lost. In Toldot, Isaac mistakenly blesses the wrong son, who just so happens to be Jacob, the soon-to-be founder of the Hebrew nation. Isaac claims that he was tricked by the costume Jacob, but Freud would have responded, "Not so fast, Isaac. There are no accidents. If you bless Jacob, it is because somewhere deep inside of you, that's what your unconscious desired." There is a lot more going on inside of our psyches than we realize. We often deceive ourselves into believing that thoughts and thoughts alone are our realities. And yet, we are much more than our surface-level thoughts. We are also our hands, our ears, our emotions, our breath, and perhaps infinite more pathways. Mindfulness meditation and living mindfully are ancient practices which allow us to awaken to these other realities of our experience which we may have cut ourselves off from to understand more how powerful an approach to awakening mindfulness can be i have bought wolfgang schroder onto the shrift wolfgang has been working in the field of mindfulness since 1996 in 2008 he became a certified teacher of mindfulness based stress reduction msbr Wolfgang and a close friend have run a mindfulness practice in Berlin called Achtsamkeitspraxis Berlin since 2012. Here, Wolfgang leads Hatha Yoga courses and the well-known 8-week MSBR course. In addition, he hosts retreats in mindfulness and mindful compassion. He also now educates others how to become mindfulness instructors at the Institute for Achtsamkeit. We did this interview sitting on the floor in Wolfgang's yoga studio at Achtsamkeitspraxis Berlin. Welcome. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me to the podcast. I'm very happy to be here, or having invited you here for this hour. Okay. Great. Well, I think you know this episode. I think is really going to be, or this conversation is really going to be about mindfulness of emotions. And mindfulness of decision making, or how mindfulness can help us make better decisions. Mindfulness can can lead us to observe emotions that maybe we didn't know we had. And when I hear this concept, I think of the unconscious, uh, Freud's unconscious, because Freud. 
Freud basically theorized that you know there's a lot going on in our psyches that we don't know about. It's underground, so to speak. It's unconscious. Um, and this reminds me of mindfulness in the sense that, it, especially with emotions, that it it can make us more aware of things happening underneath the surface that maybe we just had been ignoring. Um, so, yeah, I mean, do you think mindfulness can tap into our unconscious? Like, is there any connection there or? It's a hard question, but... It's, I can answer yes or no. <laughs> but um, yeah. if you embark on the journey of being mindful, you, you'll find out a lot about yourself. It's about discovery, it's about disclosure, and that leads into much deeper aspects of your consciousness or psyche, however you want to call it. And you will notice you're much richer person than you usually experience on a day-to-day -day level because often we just have to function get through the day somehow and we're surprised about our responses reactions that we come up with and, um, to, our, yeah, to our surprise sometimes but if we practice and if we practice mindfulness in different ways in meditation or in everyday life mm, we learn that we are a much deeper being with different personality aspects that might want to have a say as well. Like the, the loving person, the meditating person, the caring person, just to name a few, that's much, much, much broader, of course, and also the, the quarreling, the more negative person. And one of the aspects has a say, often has a say, is a louder one, and other aspects don't come to the fore that easily. And if I experience only one aspect of myself, for instance, the loud person always shouting or being angry, I start to identify with that aspect of myself. And with mindfulness, if I realize it's only one, one possibility, there is more to me, I can go deeper in my experience. I can just sit and allow myself to broaden, to open and notice, oh, okay, this loud voice is just in need of something, but the other voices, without, without wanting to sound too strange, they are telling me stories about myself, or they are expressing needs as well, or possibilities, choices that I'm not used to hear, or not even able to hear. And if I quieten down and stop, listen to myself, there's, there are these different aspects raising their heads or their voices being heard. And in that sense, I can see the connection with the unconscious. Mm. So I think Freud had a very, as I understand Freud, there was this, it was a very singular idea of this inaccessible voice, the unconscious. Mindfulness is not so, um, the way you described it, it could be many different voices or many different um, opinions or needs going on inside of you and maybe mindfulness doesn't get to the absolute truth of of who you are or of, of this unconscious this kind of 
holy grail, but it might it might still bring up a lot of other um, layers of you that have been suppressed. meditation or mindfulness on a cushion or in daily life, there is this process of going deeper, of peeling off layers and by that you tend to understand yourself more, maybe there are even more question marks, you understand yourself less, how did that come up and didn't know I was this one as well, but by owning, learning to own these different aspects of oneself, you become more whole and that feels you're coming more to a core, inverted commas, of yourself. Whether there is a core or not, that's a different topic, but the, the richness can only come up and come out or unfold if you take the time to explore. Whether you meet a final state I can't say. I wouldn't be able to say from theory nor from experience. But it's the um, enrichment. The life becomes much richer and more self... self-bestimmt? I don't know the word. Self-determined? The self-determined could be the term, yes. Not sure. Mm. I normally can. I normally know all the German words, but I'm not sure about Salzbestimmt. Yes. So your life becomes more. Um, you can take choices. You can decide more what you want to do. And also, if there are things you cannot change, with practicing mindfulness, you are more ready and able to accept things as they are. Mm. One other thing I'd like to add is. Um, Often when we act in the world, we live within conventions. We have to do things in a certain way, at a certain time maybe, people expect things from us. Learning, earning our living, living in a particular way, being a person that suits society. And then we deny, could, could happen that we deny certain aspects of ourselves. And with mindfulness, with meditation, we, we learn to encourage ourselves more to live from within, to live what we really want to live. Mm. Yeah, that's really important. Like, a lot of times we, maybe we have a job, we tell ourselves we want, but we really don't want, or maybe we're in a relationship, maybe we're just going out to a restaurant we don't like, and if you just are listening to what society tells you and you have no access to your deeper self or your other layers, you might end up doing a lot of things you don't really want to do. 
So mindfulness can help you do what you really want. Yeah. Or it can help you to find out what you really want to do. Yeah. In Dostoevsky's novella, The Underground Man, he presents a heart-wrenching turn of events. The main character, whom we will simply call the Underground Man, describes himself as sick, spiteful, and diseased. He is a miserable person, filled with anxiety and bitterness and arrogance and hatred. He is also extremely intelligent and educated. Honestly, if we met him today, we would probably denigrate him as socially awkward, and that would be a euphemism. As with all of us, and particularly these types of characters, what he really craves, deep down, is love. And if this love comes from a beautiful woman, all the better. He meets such a woman, named Eliza, when visiting a brothel. While with her, he goes on a long discourse about how wretched her life is, and diagnoses all of her psychological problems. Upon leaving, he gives her his address and tells her to visit him. He does not think she will ever show up. After all, what beautiful woman would ever visit the underground man? And yet, a few days later, she arrives. The underground man has a panic attack when he sees her at his door. He is ashamed to be seen in what he perceives to be a shabby apartment. He rushes into the next room, shuts the door, and hides from Liza, spying her through a crack in the door. This is the underground man's chance, this rare opportunity gifted to him by the universe to, perhaps, embark upon a romantic relationship with a woman whom he feels genuine tenderness for. Instead, for reasons none of us can truly understand, least of all the underground man himself, he decides to insult her so thoroughly that she will leave his apartment in disgust. He returns to Liza carrying a five-ruble bill, signaling to her that he views her as nothing more than a prostitute. Crushed, Liza leaves into the snowy St. Petersburg evening. A few minutes later, the underground man realizes his grave mistake and rushes out into the night to find her. There is snow, nothing but snow all around. She is gone, gone forever. Twenty years later, as he reflects upon this moment, the underground man is still suffering under the wounds inflicted by self-sabotage. The question remains, why did the underground man choose misery over happiness? Why did he trample upon victory and opt for defeat? With this story, Dostoevsky seems to wish to indicate that we can scarcely expect to understand our behavior merely through thinking. The motivations for our actions come from places which we may not even have access to. Mindfulness, however, may bring us closer to understanding them. So my question for you uh, is, what, how might have mindfulness helped him not to self-sabotage himself because I think we all have tendencies to like do things where we think why did I do that like I had I had what I wanted and I screwed up like I didn't do what I should have done can you maybe 
analyze that from a mindfulness perspective? Well, I can try. It sounds to me like a very common story. So, as you said, it happens to many of us that we regret things, decisions, straight after we've made them. And it's very difficult to roll them back or make them in reverse. And often those things that we regret most, they will stay as with for the rest of our lives. So, missed opportunities. And Often, I think what happens is that we are scared. We are, we are afraid of meeting another human being, showing ourselves, not from the outer appearance or with the money that you can pay or with the, with the surrounding that you can provide, but showing yourself as you really are, from your heart. And if we haven't learned that, it feels very awkward to be seen or to show ourselves to somebody else. And, and then if somebody replies with an open heart and shows their emotion, we might get overwhelmed and we won't be able to take it on. And the reaction will be to run away. It's a stress, typical stress moment, fight or flight mode, and in that case it was a flight mode. And yeah, it will leave us feel uneasy and helpless. So the question is, what can mindfulness add or provide in a situation like that? One thing again, if we've been practicing mindfulness for a while, we might be aware of emotional responses within us. We might notice when we meet somebody who shows their affection towards us that we feel insecure or anxious or become sweaty or lose the right word and then it, it's a stressful situation again we want to run away or when we become mindful in a situation we notice those sensations we are familiar with them but that's only one part that's the immediate response within us if i react i will run away if i respond i might stay with the situation i might relax into the situation and find a more appropriate answer if possible. Or, if I haven't found the answer in that situation, I might be able to own that reaction and take a next step to try to solve it afterwards or resolve it afterwards. So again, mindfulness allows or invites us to stop, to take in what happens, to appreciate the reaction, the anxiety that might well up, not to um, punish ourselves for that response, but to own it, to say, okay, that's me in that situation. And honesty, honesty is a different approach. Honesty to say, sorry, I don't know what to do now when you're here, can help um, bridge that difficulty as well. But it, that requires quite a lot of courage. And often when we are in the, in the swing of things, we are fast. And the, the first reaction is the one, or the first response is the one we follow. Mm. So this is a kind of typical case of somebody who just reacted to his emotion. In other words, he couldn't, the emotion was uncomfortable for him, and he did everything he could to 
to get rid of it? That could be one aspect. I wouldn't say that's the main no. aspect, of course, but it's one aspect that we tend to substitute human clo human warmth with material like money or nice surrounding or anything else, and that we are that we've learned to. Uh, not feel ourselves, but to do things with external um, substitutes. Mm. And often we work from a good idea. We've got lots of ideas, like the guy who said he could help her, inviting her, doing something, work from an idea. But often these ideas are not really connected with what we actually feel. Maybe again, it's coming from a conventional point of view or idealistic point of view, but can we live up to that? And that's often the difficulty that we meet. And here again, mindfulness, awareness of the situation, growing into the conflict, um, growing beyond the conflict, the internal conflict, can help us bridge these gaps or become more human. Okay, I have another question. It might be a little bit silly. I hope you'll forgive me. Let's just say hypothetically, in this Dostoevsky story, you were there in the in the room that the underground man hid into, and he and you saw him, you know, panicking, and he said, "Wolfgang, what should I do?" Right from a mindfulness perspective, what would you advise him to do? Like meditate or get in touch with his emotion, or what's the, sorry? Or eat something. <laughs> uh, okay, just to calm down a bit, you mean? No, I would invite, if I was there to interfere, I mean, that's something else. Would I do that if somebody else was um, expecting a guest to come, or a guest coming unexpectedly, would I interfere in their communication? I don't know. But if I saw the person suffering in that moment, well, if he asked you for advice? I would ask him to just ask her in. Okay. To sit down for a while, because they had met before and they, she had seen what she shouldn't have seen, his flat and the way he was appearing, but there was some chance for a connection. And this first impression that they had before, these first impressions last despite further unfoldments like a flat or the outer appearance. So on the f in the first instance, they might have met on a very personal level. And now on the second meeting, when she came to the house, the conventional barriers suddenly build up. Mm -hmm. So I would have invited him, encouraged him to just, hey, hang on a bit. Ask her for a cup of tea in there. And that would give him a chance to maybe calm down a bit and to not be so reactive? That would have given him the chance to not be that reactive and it would have also given her the chance to decide whether she wanted to stay or leave. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. 
If Esau were alive today, he would probably be a jock or a meathead or a Trump supporter. He loves hunting. He describes soup as that red stuff. His body is covered with hair from the moment he's born. Meanwhile, if Jacob were living today, we would not find him killing small animals, but rather perusing the bookshelves of the library or enjoying the music of an orchestra from the balcony of a concert hall. Jacob, in short, was sensitive, educated, and refined. Yet, because Esau was the older of the two sons, he was set to inherit his father's legacy and become the forefather of the Hebrew nation. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, and the mother of Jacob and Esau, was not going to let this happen. She knew that Jacob must, must, be the one to inherit the throne. One day, when Esau went off hunting, Rebekah instructed Jacob to act with haste. Isaac, the father, was blind. So he therefore could not see whether it would be Jacob or Esau standing before him. Rebekah had Jacob dress in Esau's hairy coat and enter the father's chambers. The plan was to trick Isaac, the father, into blessing Jacob and granting Jacob his legacy, all the while thinking it was really the older son, Esau. Jacob enters Isaac's room and asks for the blessing, the inheritance. He hides his identity from his father, however, telling Isaac that he is Esau. Isaac is skeptical. Your voice sounds like Jacob's, he says. Come closer and let me feel your hands. Because Isaac is wearing Esau's hair-covered coat, Isaac is made to believe that these hairy hands are those of Esau. Nevertheless, Isaac still remains skeptical. Are you really my firstborn son, Esau? Really? I am, I am, Jacob replies. Just, you know, a little white lie to his father. We know how the story ends. We need only observe how many men in the world are named Jacob, and how truly few, if any, are named Esau, to know who became Isaac's heir. Isaac lets himself be persuaded. He blesses Jacob and hands over the Hebrew nation to him. Two years ago on the Shrift, I argued that Isaac was able to bless the wrong son because he knew in his heart, or his unconscious, or his emotional intelligence, that he was the right son. We cannot know what Isaac really thought in that moment, or why he allowed himself to believe that it was Esau and not Jacob who stood before him. It seems, however, as though Isaac, a blind man, was in touch with an inner wisdom which was able to sidestep a hyper-rational, thought-based perception of one's experience. Indeed, the hyper-rational person would have figured out rather quickly that the son was not Esau, but Jacob. And the hyper-rational person would have thereby entrusted the future of Judaism to an ignoramus. We do not know if Isaac had developed a mindfulness of emotions practice, but though he could not see with his eyes, his other senses were perceiving reality with 2020 vision. I guess my question here would be how can mindfulness allow us to make better decisions? Mindfulness of emotions.
think there is quite a bit one could say about the, the story, you just, the way you just related it. Uh, but to answer your question... Yeah, if you want to say about the story, please. I mean, there have been three people involved in the whole decision-making process. The mother, right. the second son, and the father, who was a bit confused. So that was a bit like a... Yeah, there was an intention behind the meeting of the second son with the father, so the mother sent him in to pretend. Right. And not knowing whether he has been aware of the head and just as an evidence, oh yeah, the hairy hand, you must be the first son. So allowing him to make, to come to a different decision. Um, quite an interesting topic to analyze, mm -hmm. but I won't go any further. And that, apart from the... I'd like you to, if you want to. I'll leave that out for another time, maybe. Okay, sure. <laughs> mm. From a mindfulness point of view, to um, come to decisions, quite often we have to come to decisions from a very rational point of view, following conventions, laws, orders, to keep things as they are. But our mind or our heart, mind and heart, so not separating it, the brain and the heart as being our mind, they often say it might be different, a different decision might be better. Sometimes we speak of the gut response, the first response that comes and you feel that's the right thing. And the further you think about it, the less convinced you are that the gut response is the right one because you're so strongly influenced by other means, opinions, views. And if you've listened to the gut first, you might have come to di completely different decisions. The body has only got a particular way of expressing itself, and we tend to interpret also according to a situation that we find ourselves in. have been listening to The Shrift, Interview 6 with Wolfgang Schröder, Teacher of Mindfulness, Toldot. So with that being said, I would really like, because I love I'm still, even though I've been meditating for several years, I'm still way too driven by my thoughts and not, don't listen, not enough in touch with my God and emotions. Can you offer some, in, some tips, like some practical kind of ways that we can just get better at, um, at this, at being mindful? Like, especially regarding emotions and decision-making. Is it daily meditation is important, maybe certain books, maybe certain practices like in your daily life, whatever comes to mind, yeah. Well, as I personally like to do sitting meditation very much, I would say that's a good start, but not for everyone. 
And certainly times have changed when people start to meditate. They often don't do it out of interest to um, investigate their own minds, but to reduce stress, to calm down. So meditation might be one way, but not for everyone, not this quiet or still sitting meditation. A simple way might be to allow yourself to take time to just sit on a sofa or on a chair and not do anything. Neither listening to music, not looking at the smartphone, not even drinking a cup of tea, but just sitting mm. and being with yourself, befriending yourself, and mm. becoming familiar with what's going on inside you. It's easy to fill time. Mm. And with digital devices, it's even easier to fill up time and mm. not to allow the spaces for reflection, for processing, for simply being. How much time would, would you, for people that are just getting started, I mean, I think like an hour, I think is too much to ask for most people. Like, can you recommend an amount of time that's managed, that's people would, you know, to still get a benefit, but yeah. not uh, Was it? feel like they're, you know, they, like people who are busy, I guess, so to speak. Mm. I mean, we're all busy, but yeah. Yeah, we are all busy. We all got 24 hours a day, and often that's not the best reason to say I haven't got the time to practice. Uh, some teachers even say the more busy you are, the more you should practice and sit down and meditate. That's true. Mm, I think quite often when people join an MBSR course and they are asked to practice for 40, 45 minutes a day, it's quite a task. That's a quite quite a lot to, to undertake and to commit oneself to. But usually it works for people who are clear about their decision when they join a course, they practice. The more difficult thing is to maintain a practice. Initially there is this new practice, something that you do and you might notice something, oh I feel more relaxed, I can sleep better, I look better, I, whatever there might be. But then to continue the practice, it's the hard work. Mm -hmm. How do I stay motivated? What do I do if I meet difficult emotions or times of lacking enthusiasm? Other interests come in. So if you don't follow a particular setup, like a course where you're asked to practice for 40 minutes, dedicating five to 10 minutes a day to start with, really not doing something, and then gradually inviting more minutes in. So from 10 minutes, maybe it's 15 minutes after a week, not tomorrow. And then slowly expanding to something that seems reasonable and manageable throughout the day, like half an hour sitting. May I ask how many minutes? Do you do just sitting meditations on your own? I do med sitting meditation at my, on my own at home. Varies from 20 to 50 minutes. I sit here with my yoga students a little and with the MBSR trainings I sit. And as I've been practicing for, for a number of years, I find, quite, find it quite easy to engage in the practice myself when I'm instructing people. So choosing the words that actually resonate within me and then I feel quite absorbed at some stages too. 
I just have two more practical questions. I'd like to ask first about how we can use, how we can make decisions differently when it comes to eating and when it comes to dating, <laughs> which sometimes go together. But um, essentially, how does mindfulness play in if you're like, should I eat that extra piece of cake or should I drink that second beer or... And I think, you know, the thoughts and the gut in that situation get, can get all mixed up. I don't know how you experience, but when I'm in a state of not being able to come to a decision, it feels very unsatisfying. Like if I am a, I'm in a supermarket and I want to buy a yogurt, and I've got a choice of, I'm exaggerating, 25 different sorts or flavors, and I'm not deciding for any, and I go home without yogurt, it feels weird. I haven't fulfilled the task. But if I bought a yogurt and I realized afterwards I didn't like it, I had, ma had made a decision and I've learned from it. And next time I know better which one I won't buy again. So what I mean is if I come to a decision, if I make a decision, and that's even harder to make the decision whether it's right or wrong, but to be decisive about something, to, make a, to take a stand about something, that yogurt it will be, then I can learn. But from being undecided and wavering around, maybe, maybe not, I'm not learning. It's more, for me, it's more frustrating. It seeps or takes away energy, takes away positivity even. And so in a, sitting in a restaurant, making a decision, and then quite often I experience people when they have ordered something and I ordered something different, they envied my dish because they realized maybe they had made a wrong decision. It looks so much nicer what's on my plate than what's yeah. on their plate. What happens? That's a mindful practice, mindfulness practice in a sense. What happens if you come to a decision? Do you really follow what you like, what you want to eat? Do you make a rational decision on it? Oh, there is no meat, it's all vegan, it's all whatever there is appropriate, and can you stay to it, stick to it? Or is your heart saying, well, I'd rather have this nice bit what's on the other plate. So, and what happens next? Can you still enjoy what you've decided for, or you yeah. want to share the uh, change, change the plates instead? So what's going on, what's the motivation inside me when I make a decision? If I can't make a decision, Will I eat anything at all, or will I go for second best? Will I follow a recommendation of somebody, so it's his fault if I don't like it? Um, am I very rational about my decision? So mindfulness, it's not just about making the decision, but also reacting to the decision that you make. Mindfulness stays with you long after you eat the food. Yes, mindfulness is not a one-off. Right. So the moment and when you missed it, it's gone. There is a next moment. There is a next moment. You can try to be mindful, aware of the situation at any given moment. Mm -hmm. 
And that's a challenge again, because the mind tends to drift off, becomes bored, looks, sees something different that's more attractive. But you've got the chance, you can learn, you can apply yourself to any moment. And that's when it's happening now, at any given moment. Can I ask about the, I would just like to ask about the dating now. Okay. <laughs> For personal reasons. No. Um, well, um, I think again, dating, it's like, we go on maybe a first date and we, maybe the person, our parents or our friends tell us, yeah, I mean, she's, or he is successful, like, of course you should go out with her again, you know, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but, you know, maybe you have some emotions that are not so positive, maybe you have fear, maybe you have just a sense that you don't feel this, this like, overwhelming love that you hope to find, um, but, so your, your gut might not be not so interested, but your brain is like, tries to rationalize it. Um, or it could be the other way where maybe your gut really likes the person, but your brain says, no, it's, it's not a good fit. She lives in another country, whatever, you know, she's not the same religion. Um, I guess just after a date, how can we use mindfulness to help us decide if we should go on an, another date? Is my question. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. It's similar to the food question, I think. I think it is very yeah. similar. So what, what's the motivation? Uh, what do you feel attracted to? What do you want from a relationship? You were mentioning love. And love, I think, needs to develop. It's to take in also the difficult aspects in life when you find the, 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 the primary attraction has maybe worn off a little, but still there is this, this connection, there is this interest in one another, this common um, venture that you want to, to live, to move into. But if we follow just the superficial attraction, we are easily um, mis misled. So because what you take in visually, we interpret. Yeah, when we look a second time, it looks different. Yeah, third time, even more different. If you follow the gut feeling, maybe it's a, out of our particular state of mind at this particular moment, a romanticizing, seeing something into a person that's not really there. Something that she or he might not be promising. And but we hope. We long for it. It's a need that don't, doesn't feel expression in it, but we want it. And then in waking up the next day or the day after is, it's not what I really wanted. So nowadays, and also with dating, as you mentioned, dating, dating with apps, it can be very consuming, consu not consuming, consumer-oriented. You just want to consume a person. But the question is, how do you meet a person? Like the, the guy from the story from Dostoevsky, what happens if I meet a, a real person? Mm. My needs and my worries, do they fit? Or is it not 
just much, so much more to meet an actual human being. And connected with the eating, as you mentioned that, and also with dating, you could ask yourself, and there's a beautiful book about that, with eating, what kind of hunger do I try to feed? What's the book called? I have to look it up. Okay, I'll include it it's, in the show. It's to do with mindful eating, that's part yeah. of the subtext, at least. So is it an empty brain that I need to feed? It's a lack of communication? Is it a lack or an empty heart that wants to wants to be fed? Is it an empty stomach? Something else going on in the guts? So there are so many reasons why we um, supplement with food. Oh yeah. yeah. So if it's if I go to the cinema, it's going to be exciting. The popcorn. And what happens with the popcorn? Do I eat it? Do I chew it? Do I taste it? Or is it repressing some kind of unpleasant feelings or excitements? Similarly, if I look for people in dating situations, what need do I, what do I want to be fulfilled? Or what lack inside me do I want to be covered? To, um yeah, cover up or fulfill. Yeah. yeah. Do I feel lonesome today? Did I have a bad experience at work? So I need a partner for the night to make things up. It's a question on honesty to oneself. So what happens? And one last thing on that with regards mindfulness, when we practice mindfulness in this MBSR context, primarily it's not about good, bad, right or wrong. The experience that I have at this moment is as it is. What I do with it, that can be looked at in different ways. All the fascinating insights Wolfgang shared with us, I believe too will stay with me the most. He said that mindfulness is not a one-off. We tend to think of meditation or mindfulness as something we do for a chosen period before we go back to our normal lives. Yet, in a way, this is to misunderstand mindfulness completely. Mindfulness is just as applicable when we are in the middle of a yoga session, when all is still around us, as it is when we are rolling up our yoga mat and making small talk with the other sweaty yogis nearby. Mindfulness is just as applicable when you are watching the sunrise from a mountaintop as it is when you are trying to send an email on the metro despite the bad internet connection. Wolfgang's second point, which is interrelated with the first, is that meditation and mindfulness, while they may be relaxing, have a far higher intention than mere relaxation. When Jacob came into Isaac's chambers disguised as Esau, surely Isaac was anything but relaxed as he had to contemplate whether he was handing his legacy over to the wrong son. And moreover, Isaac was not meditating in this moment or trying to be mindful. He had to live amid an array of devastating stressors and yet still make a decision, and quickly. Indeed, Wolfgang and Isaac have shown us that mindfulness may be its most powerful during those moments when we are not supposed to be meditating, when we are not supposed to be doing mindfulness.